So it wants their stuff to be successful. They want their APIs to be used. They want their user interfaces and programs and applications to be used, et cetera. So that's the primary thing is, can you solve real problems with it? And can you get the feedback from those consumers and developers early enough to tell you you're, you're on the right path? I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection. Uh, I'm your host, Jason Harmon, CTO at Stoplight. And um, today's one of those days where, you know, uh, I don't get as much time as I like to go read and learn new stuff, but every now and then when I do get the chance, there's people I trip across that I just think, I, I want to meet these people. So our, our guest today, uh, David Biasak, I hope I said your name right. I forgot to ask before. All right. Uh, Chief API Officer, cool title at API Chair, uh, is going to join us today and uh, we'll kind of talk about, uh, you know, talk shop, talk API stuff. So thanks for coming, David. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you guys do. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Um, so I'm Dave Bisak. I, as Jason mentioned, I'm the Chief API Officer at Aperture. I joined the company when it was founded a little over five years ago, um, and they set out to become a banking API platform. So um, they wanted to build APIs around their banking solutions um, and brought me on board to help build the API program there. Uh, so I started out as an API architect and then eventually moved up to where I am now as chief API officer. So I'm responsible for the design and architecture of our APIs. Um, most of the time I spend in doing that analysis and design, I work with our, the product folks who come up with feature requirements and then we map them into APIs. And then I do API design along with uh, another API architect on the team, his name is Aaron. Um, so we convert all the basic feature requirements into APIs, and then the engineering teams go and implement all those APIs, deploy them, and help us secure them, et cetera. Um, so most of my work is around designing those APIs, but all the ancillary things that go along with that as well. So training um, other folks on what it means to be an API-first company and what it means to you know try to design APIs up front um, and Really, what we do is, is try to gather those requirements and, and make them separate from just UI requirements or API requirements, but just be feature requirements and then build APIs around that. So I've been doing that um, ever since. Very cool. You're uh, you're our people. You're amongst good company. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, there's a lot of folks uh, like, you know, uh, trying to do the sort of thing that you're doing and, and the thing that I've done before, which I think is very similar. Uh, I think in our audience. So uh, you're in good company. Mm -hmm. um, and you did a heck of a stint at, I guess, SAS before this, right? Yeah, I worked at SAS for 28 years before coming to Aperture, um, built a whole career there, um, doing all kinds of things. But I spent my entire time in the R&D organization. Um, when Java came out in 96, I helped SAS adopt the Java platform. So I was, um, my role there was similar to what I do at Aperture as chief API officer. I, I was the R&D Java strategist. So I helped define Java standards for the entire organization, did a lot of training on Java adoption and building libraries, things like that. And then the last five years at SAS, I ran the API Center of Excellence, um, which was a, a governing body. So we helped shape the REST API standards for SAS 
and worked as a consulting organization and helped all the teams design their REST APIs according to those standards, um, worked on tooling around APIs uh, and things like that. So it helped with the adoption of, of APIs throughout the R&D organization. And in those five years, we, we had an API review process and we had about 120 different APIs that we brought through that, that design and review process while I was there. Nice. Um, so I guess bringing it back to kind of uh, what caught my attention as you had started this um, blog post series uh, that you'd titled The Language of APIs that I think somewhat right. hubs around open API, but I feel like you touched on a bunch of other stuff too. Um, so, I mean, kind of what do you feel like is the the big point that you're working to get across in this series? Yeah, so I've always been kind of a language geek um, throughout my entire professional career. So I was always interested in programming languages, as, as I mentioned, you know, helping with, with the adoption of Java at, at SAS, et cetera. Um, I was always intrigued by the expressiveness of languages, um, how well they can capture your intent as a developer, as a programmer, um, how concise versus how verbose those languages are. And Java is, is kind of known as a, a relatively verbose language. Um, but certain language attributes can help improve that with um, with type inference and things like that. But basically, how do they how do they work as languages for communicating ideas? Um, you know, our human language is used for expressing ideas and communicating with each other. Programming languages are used for communicating with the compiler and the backend and the runtime, but also for communicating with other people who are going to be reading those programs and reading that code later. Um, and so the idea of how well you can express your ideas um, in those languages is really intriguing to me and, and more so how those languages change over time and the way we use those languages changes over time. And in fact, it, it comes to be that, that oftentimes those languages influence the way you think about things. So the solutions to a programming task using Java are very different from the solutions you might come up with using a functional language like F-sharp or Scala or even TypeScript and stuff. So that's what I'm really interested in, in is this notion of languages, how they capture ideas, how well you can express your ideas in them, how they grow, and then how you as a programmer or developer grow along with those languages as you acquire those languages and become more fluent. You know, it's funny, I think uh, for a kind of fundamentally technology oriented podcast, I think we probably, if we could ever figure it out, might have set a record for the uh, number of uh, professionally trained linguists and just language geeks. It's uh, I feel like it's a it's an occupational hazard of when you work with APIs too much, all of a sudden words take on a whole new meaning. Um, yes. I mean, like my favorite example is like when someone says the word metadata. I'm like the word means nothing. I mean, it's just an empty, vacuous hole of meaning. You have to describe what it means, and it usually means you didn't think about what to call it. <laughs> uh, you get hangups, right? Uh, so I love this uh, this focus on language. I think one thing we've heard a lot from uh, other practitioners is the idea that the words. Uh, so you're talking about kind of programming languages and that expressiveness, which is fascinating, and we might come back to. Um, but in terms of describing your platform. When you think about not just designing one API, but designing a whole portfolio of things, that right. the words that you use carry greater meaning. Uh, and that a lot of folks, when we ask them, you know, what would you do if you started from scratch? They say, define that language. So I'm curious, like in terms of mm -hmm. domain definition or capability definition, whatever you want to call it, you know, how do you approach that sort of thing? Right. And this was one of the um, the most widely 
read and shared articles that I wrote in this series, I wrote about, you know, using domain-driven design. And a lot of what we do at Aperture is, is based off of James Higginbotham's book, um, where he talks about this ADDR process. And um, the, the title of that article that I wrote was that API design first is not API design first. Um, you know, everybody hears about API design, API first this, API first that. Um, but that's really a, a misnomer or mischaracterization because you don't start with the API no matter what you're doing. You have to go back to business requirements and what problem are you trying to solve? What problems do your users or potential users have that can be solved, you know, hopefully with an API? Um, and, and really, it's understanding that and, and using the techniques of domain-driven design to characterize those problems. And then an important part of that process is building the ubiquitous language. You know, what is the set of terms, the vocabulary of your problem domain? Um, and then making sure everybody understands and agrees on what those terms mean so that you're removing ambiguity as you as you move forward and go through the rest of the process. So it's really important to build that vocabulary so that everybody understands things um, from the get-go. Um, and it starts with, with that, you know, the product requirements and understanding the domain in which this problem resides um, and, and understanding what those terms are. Um, and then you, you have to codify those in some way. So they actually become names of, you know, when you do API modeling, they, they will filter down and often become names of resources in your API model, or they may become the names of operations in your API model. Um, but but that's where I really want people to start is is going back to the source. What is the problem you're trying to solve, and then how do you capture that with the language? Um, and you know, design patterns were a really popular thing 20, 30 years ago. Um, and really, what was important about design patterns was this whole notion of of a pattern language, which is what you use to document the the problems and the forces and then the patterns that you use to solve those particular problems and i like to see the same mappings happen with with apis as they do with just general software development is you you build a language and you have a way of expressing either the problem set or the solution set with with specific languages and some languages are good for that and some languages need need some work um but but that's really what intrigues me about about this and and understanding what how languages influence people and the way you think. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I think when I've tried to describe this to people, I'm like, if if you had to draw a very naive sort of graph of the conceptual names of things and what you intend to build, and you just put it on a big marker board and you walked customers in the room, would they point and go, oh yeah, that's my stuff? You know, mm -hmm. would they recognize quickly, conceptually, what it is that, they intend to do out of just the language without anything further. Do you use any, you mentioned kind of DDD is sort of the methodology that you're using. Are there any sort of specific mm -hmm. tools that make that process of aligning around language easier for you? Um, no specific tools. Uh, you know, James in his book, he, he outlines some, some tools and techniques for doing things with, with like spreadsheets and tables of, you know, defining various things. Um, we've kind of extended that um, to me, spreadsheets are a little bit awkward to work with uh, versus we use a wiki primarily. So um, our product team uses various tools that that product managers like to use um, for capturing, you know, epics and, and higher level goals and things like that. So this is what this product or this feature is going to do. And then they break it down into components and they use various tools for that. And, and eventually things filter down 
um, from from that method down into things that become you know Jira tickets. We use Jira for tracking activities and and our our um, sprint cycles and things like that. Um, so a lot of things come down as as Jira tickets. But what I do is I have to consolidate all that information from all these different sources, from interviews with with the product people. We we sit down and have meetings and we go over and ask questions and things like that. And then we just basically capture everything into an API model that we capture just on a Confluence page uh, as a wiki page. Um, and it's very easy to collaborate on that. Um, so we can we can go in here and we can kind of give a high level view. What I do is, is I do this translation exercise. I take what they give me as, as product requirements and then I rephrase it and kind of speak it back to them and say, is this the right way of picturing this or, or representing this? Do I have all the elements captured um, is this a correct representation of what you've told me? And we iterate on that. And and because when I write things down this way, then it will off, off, often raise a lot of questions. And so I'll write those questions down and then and we can iterate on that Confluence page and people can add questions and, and, and write responses in there and it evolves over time. And it's pretty easy to, to modify and extend that API model as we learn more and more. And, and the top of the the top of the document is where I, I list you know the vocabulary. I list what are the the common terms for this domain model, um, and we make sure people have a common understanding of that. And then that filters down into the lower level of what those API resources are going to be. And and that tends to work really really well um, versus something like Jira, which tends to fragment your knowledge and put in lots of different places that it's oftentimes really hard to get the bigger picture of how things interrelate. You can have an epic that's got 20 or 30 stories in it, and you have to click on each one, open a page, read what's in there, read the acceptance criteria, and then go back to the next page and the next page and the next page. And by the time you get through the whole thing, you've kind of lost track of where you are and trying to figure out where did I read that initial requirement about this one specific attribute or this one specific behavior? It gets lost in my mind. So by consolidating the domain model, the knowledge base into a Confluence page really helps me. And it's it's guided by, again, with, with domain-driven design is these bounded contexts that really kind of fit naturally into your API models. So you have an API and you focus really on what is the, the core element of that API? What is the primary resource? And, and what are the pieces necessary to pull that together? And you can certainly have related resources and you can have sub-resources, et cetera, and you can explain all that. But usually that, that one wiki page talks about that one specific domain model. And it tried to try to coalesce all the information we need there in order to then, once we've narrowed that down and we've got the, the basic API model worked out, then we can transcribe that directly into an open API document and start building that. And, and, and that becomes more of, um, you know, the design art of how you capture that into one or more API documents. We, we have a multi-document design. So we have a, an API that's just called common, which is one open API document that has a bunch of common reusable components. So we've got schema components in there. We've got, standard query parameters that might be used elsewhere. Um, we've got standard response objects and, and things like that. So those are all part of those components. And then each individual API, whether it's a, an accounts API for, for viewing your accounts and your account balances, or it's a transfers API for making transfers, or a transactions API that lets you look at those tr transaction history for individual accounts. 
in various other elements. It, you know, we do digital banking, so it's all kinds of banking related resources. Each one of those will have its own API model and its own API definition and open API, but they can reference schemas and, and other things from each other um, quite naturally. And, and that works really well with the composition model that's supported with open API. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I got to double down here and say that, uh, you know, we're certainly big fans of James Higginbotham and his process. And you mentioned ADDR, and this is Align, Define, Design, Refine. And I yes. think what a lot of what you just described is kind of the align and define part, right? Is like yes. before yes. It, it, internally at Stoplight, you know, we tend to refer to this as like the homework that happens uh, before you design. And it's like a, a lot of it is just marker boards and spreadsheets and Miro charts. And mm -hmm. it's kind of a loosely defined thing that, um, you know, you can't point to and say, well, go use that tool and it'll do it. It's about the discussion and about the alignment and having a shared definition of it. Yeah, it's very much communication is just so, so central and key to that. And, and the notion of collaboration is, is really, really critical there. Yeah. Because it's um, interesting because, you know, I, when I worked at SAS, SAS was and is uh, hugely based on analytics, right? That That's their bread and butter is analytics. But I never really learned or became an analytics expert. I didn't really know the domain model very well. Um, I just I just kind of knew APIs and interfaces and, and kind of software design. Um, but all the work that I did at SAS really wasn't analytics-based. There were a lot of other people who were way smarter in that, in PhDs and analytics, et cetera, you know, who did all that work. And then at Aperture, I came into the company without any banking experience at all. So I relied very heavily on the domain experts um, to teach me the domain ideas, you know, and, and so I learned quite a bit about banking, but I'm not a banker and I'm not a financial person. Um, I'm an API person, um, but it's important for us to be able to communicate and work because, you know, these banking domain people, they don't really know APIs. They don't know what's, what's possible with APIs or they don't know good ways to structure and manage an API program for evolution and, and things like that. And so it has to be teamwork there and, and we kind of teach each other as we go along. Yeah, I think it's one of the funner aspects of working on kind of, you know, platform engineering APIs kind of topics is you find yourself in all kinds of things. And these days it's like, look around the room, there's APIs getting called right now, right? It's everywhere, it's in everything. You know, your fridge and your washer are talking to stuff. You know, yeah. we're reminded of this a lot at Stoplight where it's like, you know, our top customers make like beer, electrical parts, uh, shipping automation stuff, like very, you know, traditional business lines. And you go, well, yeah, like at, at its core, integration was always about supply chain automation, right? Um, so it's it's really interesting that, um, you know, I, I I did a stint in fintech and that sort of stuff. And I came up with a better understanding of it. But if someone said, you know, describe how the payment stack of the world works, I'd be like, yeah, I'll tell you to talk to you. But, you know, I trusted them in the definition and just created the right guardrails so that it, it looked and smelled and felt like the other things. So I'm with you on that. Um, I think back to our sort of language of APIs arc here. Um, you know, we touched on programming languages and some of that expressiveness. 
and um, kind of how to define these domains. But I guess you mentioned in the course of that, open API is sort of the way that you're expressing those things right. and uh, sort of kicking off the development process. So how do you see that sort of fitting in? Um, so we, we adopted open API at Aperture when, when I came in. Um, you know, I, I kind of said, this is probably the the, the best representation of, of how to capture an API design. There were lots of other competing standards at the time. You know, there's RAML and there's API blueprints and all kinds of other things. But but OpenAPI kind of had the momentum going in and um, OpenAPI 3.0 had been out and, and the tooling around that specification was really kind of the kicker. Um, you know, by having a well-defined and constrained language for expressing an API design um, really enables the tools and stuff. So I have lots of issues with OpenAPI that I would like to change if I could. Um, but, you know, there's lots of ways that I would really like to extend OpenAPI. And it goes back to, I think you can go back to like issue like 182 in, in the, the GitHub repo is one, you know, an idea that I put in there many, many years ago. Um, that hasn't been adopted yet, but, but there's a lot of people who seem to like that idea of, of just you know extending it a little bit in a different direction. But it's interesting because it it has constraints, and constraints are really kind of important. Um, you know, if if OpenAPI adopted everybody's wish and and made all these changes, it would become untenable. It would be become unusable. Um, so the those constraints are really what are interesting. And this was actually one of the, this is my last post that I, that I published on, on my, my blog on the Substack um, was about growing a language. Um, and, and this is the 25th anniversary of Guy Steele's seminal talk of the same name. I was recording that was at the um, Uppsala, it was object-oriented programming systems, languages, and applications, an ACM conference um, that was held every year. And they've renamed to Splash since then. Um, but 25 years ago, he gave this really great talk about growing a language. And, and he was a, he was a, on staff at Sun Microsystems at the time. Java was, was growing in popularity, and there were all these requests to extend Java in this direction or extend Java in that direction, add this new feature here. And he talked about you know, how you go about growing a language like Java. Um, and this applies directly to growing a language like the OpenAPI specification or growing a language like JSON schemas. Um, and he talked about the forces that come to play and how you have to weigh all those forces and think about the long-term evolution and what's going to be sustainable and things. So it's it's a fabulous talk. If people have not watched it, um, it's really it's really good to to to, to see. I think um, anybody who does any kind of software design, um, especially around languages, um, should really be familiar with that. So um, so we adopted OpenAPI. Um, and and you know haven't regretted that in any by any means um, because of the expressiveness that it has even though it's constrained sometimes those constraints are really helpful to help you focus on what it is you're really trying to say um, and with with a constrained language um, you can still have quite a bit of expressiveness um, and and it's kind of nice because it it leads itself to a much more consistent view of what your APIs will look like. Um, because you can't express completely wild and crazy different things. So anybody who's looking at an open API definition understands its structure and they understand the meaning of all the constructs in that document um, and, and things. So it, it, it helps with, with the understanding of the API. So that's what's really beneficial about it. In addition to it being a, you know, a, a JSON document 
that can be parsed and processed and analyzed. You can use it for code generation. You can use it for, for creating mocks. Um, you can use it for creating your, your documentation and, and you can use it for creating SDKs and all, all manner of deployment methods and everything else. So it's really beneficial there. And it's proven to be pretty powerful and expressive given that constraint that it has. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, what you're really describing is the design by constraints methodology applied to HTTP in general, right? Like Fielding was trying to sort of express the possibilities with HTTP programmatically. So right. I think it even goes beyond that. Uh, I have to comment too on like the maintaining open API and how hard it is. Uh, I was actually part of the founding crew on the open API initiative and mm -hmm. alongside Ron Rutowski was supposed to be the referee for the group. And yeah, when you see all of the world's perspectives on how to design an API and have to make choices, it's hard. It's really hard. And my favorite example mm -hmm. is um, stuff like discriminator in open API and like the fact that it's never yeah. really quite worked right in any tooling. Mm -hmm. Um, for my money is like, it probably should have never been there. The, yes, people want to do that. But it's like every time I've worked with folks on why are you trying to build a polymorphic API, right? Something that changes its meaning depending on what you're doing. Usually there's a cleaner way to do it. And I think even to connect back to your earlier point that like, there's so many languages that express different things. The API designer's job is often to think about how to get rid of all that flavor and come back to really just the foundations of object-oriented principles, things that are applicable in every language. And it's a really tough set of constraints to work with, but it's kind of what makes it all work. So yeah, right. it's tricky for sure. Yep. Yep. So, um, you know, we're we're taking into account all these, uh, you know, sort of open API and expressing uh, things and all that. And, uh, you know, I know one of the struggles historically has always been, you know, you write down a bunch of rules and standards and then you ask, uh, you know, all the developers in a company and really large ones, it's hard to even communicate that, that, hey, do it this way, right? Um, and to, to sort of produce this feeling that a bunch of APIs feel like one thing, they feel like one platform. So, uh, but that's hard, right? So like, what's your approach to sort of building that consistency of design? Well, you mentioned guardrails earlier, and, and I think that's that's an important aspect. So when, when I worked at SAS, it was a very large organization. So it was it was very hard to have people kind of have the same mindset, which is really kind of what's necessary. If you want to have a consistent set of APIs, um, you know, and, and we had marginal success there, you know, so, you know, we had kind of API design standards. And we said, you know, you should do it this way. You should avoid this particular practice. This is how you should name things and things like that, you know, which only goes so far um, until you can really, and you can't codify a mindset in, in, a, in an API style guide. Um, but you, you can certainly try to communicate again. And, and really the best way to do that is through examples. Now at Aperture, it was, it was a much simpler job because I was for a long time, um, for four years, I was the only API architect. I was the only person designing the APIs. So I, you know, I, I was able to just kind of use the same style throughout and had that consistent voice. Um, it's good to be the king, right? I'm sorry? It's good to be the king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but even even over time, you know, that, that voice changes. And I can see where there are things that I designed four years ago that I would design completely differently today. Um, and that's a really hard thing to, to really manage um, especially for a larger organization. Um, so, but the best way to go is, is try to, to, you know, keep in mind, you know, who you're writing these APIs for. 
they're they're written to be used and written to be consumed. They're not written to be put up on a pedestal and say, look how beautiful this API is. Isn't it elegant looking, right? The real judge of that is, can developers solve problems with the API? Can they actually consume it and use it? Can they uh, adopt it quickly? Do they know how to use it? Um, can they infer how to use it because it's consistent, for example? So if you do something in one place, the way you do pagination in one part of the API should be the same as what you do in another part of the API. So selling people on that, everybody wants their software to be used. So in order to get people to kind of buy into any kind of governance product or a program or anything like that, it's the same thing as with user interfaces, right? If it's inconsistent, um, and it's going to be harder for people to use, it's not going to be as successful. Somebody wants their stuff to be successful. They want their APIs to be used. They want their user interfaces and programs and applications to be used, et cetera. So that's the primary thing is, can you solve real problems with it? And can you get the feedback from those consumers and developers early enough to tell you you're on the right path? Or at least later on, you get the feedback that, yes, I am using it and it is successful. And then you use that as a showcase for other people. So when you have new people coming into the company, you can point them to your history and say, you know, this style of API works really well. This one that we put out there uh, two years ago, no one's really using it. Um, you know, maybe its design is, isn't really kind of doesn't really meet the need and things like that. So there's a lot, a lot of good information coming about now around governance. So um, Arnaud, Arnaud Loray over at Postman is doing a lot of stuff writing about governance um, and and he takes a you know kind of a I don't want to say a, it's a non-intrusive approach to governance. It's really you have some guardrails, but you're really trying to lead rather than push. You know, lead by example rather than forcing people to go down a specific path. Um, but basically, if if everybody's is on board with with the goals of the organization and why you're doing this work to begin with. And then that's really what you use to incent people to to come up with good, consistent APIs. Yeah, and you had mentioned uh, and written about kind of you know thinking in dry terms, right? Don't repeat yourself. And I think um, that's a big part of what you're describing here. And I, I like to express it that um, your code base being dry is far less important than the community of consumption around that API and how dry that code is, mm -hmm. right? So to your point on, can you, can you have common consistent patterns that are used across the whole portfolio of APIs means that the clients using more than one API just dried up a bunch of their code. And I, I you know, working at like PayPal, where we have like a million developer network, right? I'm like, you, you add one line of code to that and you just added 10,000 lines of code next month for all the clients writing against this. So mm -hmm. if it's harder for you, fine. Like let's do the oh, right yeah. thing for the broad audience because at the end of the day, their time is more valuable than ours in terms of growing the business. So yeah, that's, that. that's an important, that's an important point because I have to kind of sometimes clarify to the engineers who are building the APIs you know, they ask me, why do you make my job so hard? And I'm saying, because we're trying to make the developer's job easier. You know, making the APIs easy to use um, pays over multiple times in the effort that we put forth initially. Um, you know, and, and a good example of that is, so we adopted RFC, it was it uh, 4707, the uh, problem plus JSON, application problem plus JSON standard for, you know, a standard error response. 
or they call it a problem response because it doesn't have to be an error. It could just be a problem. Um, and we adopted that pretty early um, in, our, in our current cycle of, of uh, new APIs that we're doing for our platform. And, and you know, we, we use it, but we extended it. So, you know, you have these a type field on the error, which is a URL that describes what that type means. And, and so we have lots of different ways of expressing lots of different type types of errors. So when you have a 422 that says unprocessable entity, right? It's syntactically valid, but but there's something inside of it that I can't deal with. Um, it's it's internally inconsistent or whatever, you know. So we have lots of different error types that can be associated with a 422. And, and sometimes people think it's really kind of hard to manage all those in the code base and, and generate the right errors and, and things like that. But it, but it yields so many benefits to the developer who, if you just return back 422 without explaining why, they're just lost, right? And Or if it's a 400, why is it a 400? Well, give them some hints. And what we even do is we go beyond just describing what the error is with the detail. We also have like a remediation thing. How do you actually fix this particular error? So with every error type that we have, we also have remediation that says what you can do to, to rectify it. Um, and, and that's there for the developers to make the developer's job easier so they get back reasonable errors from the system rather than just generic things that don't tell them any information at all. Um, and, and the other part of this is, as you said, consistency. So since OpenAPI is a standard document format, we also have a whole bunch of templates that we use and we have a tool to generate open API definitions from, from these templates. Um, so you can really bootstrap an entire API by just adding a couple uh, annotations um, to say, okay, I've got, a, I've got a resource here and I wanna generate some basic CRUDL operations, or I've got another resource over here and I wanna add some actions to modify it. Or here's a singleton object over here, doesn't have all the CRUDL operations around it, but it but it's managed this way. And so we have, a, we have you know, five or six different patterns that we can express with a simple annotation. And then and you just code that briefly and push a button and it generates all the kind of standard boilerplate around all those operations. And it puts in the security requirements for each, each of the operations and it, it puts the tags in there and, and it gives you response and, and uh, request and response schema placeholders. And it just generates all this boilerplate for you and then that lets you work on what's important, right? Because all that boilerplate, all that standard stuff that's always the same, you shouldn't have to deal with. You shouldn't have to write that. You shouldn't even have to copy and paste it. Let something else do it. And that's what this tool does. And that gives you a standard layout for all of your APIs. And then you just have to kind of fill in what's different. Add your new query parameters to this operation or, or define your, your schemas over here, et cetera. And then you can concentrate on, on the more interesting parts of writing an API, which is really kind of, what you're doing and what the what the messages look like. All right, I'm going to have to talk you into giving me a demo of this thing later. It sounds cool. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Eric Vilda, uh, aka Wild, for uh, for the anglified uh, pronunciation. Uh, friend of the show who helped uh, develop that um, the problem details for HTTP APIs, yeah. and I totally second that advice. Like, don't make up error models. It's so hard to do from scratch, and I really feel like they solved the problem. <laughs> Um, yeah. And it's like the number one thing people screw up when they first build an API is don't think about error flows. So right. wonderful yeah, advice. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a standard like meme that we, we see on all these different forums around APIs is return to 200, error equals true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, do totally. That. Yeah, don't break the basic rules standard of HTTP. Of for API design, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, 
So uh, I guess as you know, we're kind of hitting time here. I'm sure uh, we're losing listeners with uh, boredom and other things to do. Um, <laughs> any other sort of uh, parting words of wisdom for us here? And um, I'm always empathetic to folks listening who are like overwhelmed by all the things you just said to do. Where would they get started? Yeah. So we're really fortunate in that the API community is so open and accepting. So there's lots of different places that you can jump in. Um, there's a lot of different um, Slack instances out there. APIs you won't hate is a good one. Um, there's Discord servers and stuff. And then there are, there are conferences. So API Days is, is going next week. I'm not going to that, but but Aaron, our API architect is. Um, but there's the API specifications conference, usually in the fall area year. Uh, hopefully they'll they'll do that again this year. I haven't heard anything about that. But get involved with the community in one way or another. Um, and and follow what's going on with the open API specification um, and Project Moonwalk, you know, which is, you know, the next version, the next rev of that specification. Jump in and 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 make your voice heard. Um, the more perspectives that we have, the better off the environment's going to be. But there's so many people that you can call on. And, and if you don't have someone at your own company that can be a mentor, you know, look outside your company and, and reach out in those other communities and say, hey, I'm kind of new at this. I know there's a lot to learn. Is there anybody who could kind of help me walk through my journey with me and, and help me grow and understand, you know, the, the good ways of building an API program, the good ways of designing an API, the good ways of, of gathering requirements and, and sharing that align and define phase with my product team. You know, how do I succeed with all these elements of, of API design? There's a lot of people out there reach out and they're, as I said, they're very welcoming um, and, and people really do want to help each other out. Um, so join the community. Don't, don't be afraid of, of jumping in um, and, and you'll, you'll probably reap lots of benefits. Love that advice. It's uh, it's dead true. I think it's part of what sucked me into the API vortex. Is just uh, you know, I don't know. People who speak my language, you know, right. uh, and and people who somehow, if if they stay in it, have this uh, innate will to try to describe the world. Right. This is what we've been talking about. Is now that APIs are everywhere, we have to describe the world. So how do we do it? And we got to put yeah. our heads together. Shout out to Phil Sturgeon for his APIs you won't hate, uh, former stoplighter and regular contributor. We love you, Phil. Uh, well, David, thanks so much for being on. Um, tell folks where they can find out about all your writing stuff. You kind of mentioned it in there, but uh, where do they go find you online? Yeah, so it's on apidesignmatters.substack.com. It's all one word. So the general the general substack is called API Design Matters. So it's all matters related to APIs, large and small. And right now, this, this series that I'm doing is... The, um, the language of API design, um, but that's just a, sh a short series that'll conclude. But the, the broader one is just API design matters. Love it. Well, thanks for sharing everything uh, with the community and we'll all follow along. Thanks, David. All right. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you want to ask, look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on, and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you. API Intersection podcast listeners are invited to sign up for Stoplight and save up to $650. Use the code intersection10 to get 10% off a new subscription to Stoplight Platform Starter or Pro. Take a look at this episode's description for more details.